Welcome to the Sonic Nuance Electronics Podcast, focusing on live music performance topics with a particular focus on musicianship, equipment, as well as worship teams. Today's interview is with Rick Turner, master luthier and owner of Rick Turner Guitars. Growing up, my biggest influence on bass as a bass guitarist was John Entwistle of The Who, who I consider just a phenomenal musician. And his instruments in the late 70s, uh, early 80s that I became aware of were made by a company called Alembic, and in particular, a luthier named Rick Turner. I met Rick at a recent NAM conference down in Anaheim, California, and we chatted about his instruments. Later, I asked him if he might be interested in doing an interview here, and he graciously agreed. And what you'll hear next is the interview. We focused on the instruments, but I got a lot more. John's a very insightful, funny guy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this great interview. Rick, nice yep. to meet you. Thank you for your time. I nice to be here. So, oh, I didn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in your shop, which yeah. is a real treat for me. So I wanted to focus today on the instruments that you worked with uh, John and Twistle for yes. in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, actually, it would have been early 70s. Early 70s. We're talking 73, 74 75 about about then okay yeah these would have been the alembics yes i believe john got his first alembic at manny's in new york okay and it would have been um fairly straightforward long scale um alembic standard um low pass filter electronics and then course the deal with the who is that they always had to have spares and then they had to have spares for the spares <laughs> as was described to me by um, alan rogan the uh uh guitar and bass tech for uh for pete and and john and then john came and visited us um when we still had the uh we had the guitar bass factory, if you want to call it that, was um, in the barn of an old chicken ranch in uh, on the outskirts of Katati, mm -hmm. just uh, just north of Petaluma. Yes. And um, <clears throat> then, sort of the 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 famous bases that we built for him were after that visit, where he wanted um, the Explorer style. Those are the, the ones I want to focus on. Yeah, yes, yes. With um, bird's eye maple top and back and the laminated neck, um, the notes uh, of the uh, basically the at the at the fifth, seventh, ninth, twelfth were were the the notes at those places inlaid in mother of pearl mm. in the fingerboard. That was done by a guy whose name I don't remember. He was um, an inlay artist and lived in Sausalito. And he just sort of disappeared at mm -hmm. one point. And I did the basic construction on the instruments and did the uh, 
the silver inlay spider webs in the in the tops. Was that his request, or you guys? Yeah, were yeah. Oh. Um, you know, he had certain requirements, and then certain ideas, and with a lot of this kind of collaboration with an artist, it's throwing things back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he wanted the spider webs, and I decided where they would be, and and figured out how to do them in in uh, silver wire mm. uh, in the in the bird's eye maple. Um, one interesting thing that he did uh, request was that we come up with a way of making the string nut variable in height because he would use a fresh set of unpolished roto sounds every night mm -hmm. uh, and he got them from the factory unpolished which they normally didn't do hmm. so they were very abrasive okay. so like just stringing the instrument up was like running a, a nut file into the brass nut <laughs> so the nut would wear down very quickly and so we did these uh, I came up with this idea of doing two jack screws uh, one each between the E and the A and one between the, the D and the G okay. and then a lock screw between the A and the D uh, and that worked out extremely well for him and so he would replace the nuts as they would no he out? would just raise as he needed to he could just raise the nut up by a oh, few thousandths of an inch I see. and compensate for the, the filing effect of the strings. Got it. Got it. Uh, the other thing that he wanted that was fairly unusual was no relief in the neck at all. Um, his spec was, uh, I want it to buzz the same on all frets. <laughs> you know, everybody else is into, I don't want it to buzz on any fret. Okay. John wanted pretty low action yes. dead flat neck and and the same amount of of rattle everywhere interesting so it was, it was pretty cool and did he play pretty hard i recall him having a fair dynamic range with his playing okay you know he he could play lightly when he was playing really fast but then he could also really dig in mm -hmm. but he also use that dynamic to control the amount of rattle and buzz that he was getting you I know see. so it wasn't quite like a sitar but you know but he could control that you know the clank and the rattle very very well yeah and how many of these explorer instruments were there uh i built three of the explorers and <clears throat> i know at least one of them uh, there were two four strings and an eight string. Yes. And I know at least one of them went back to Alembic at some point and had the peghead changed from the A uh, to the V yes. style peghead. Okay. Okay. And I don't know when that happened. That would have been after. I left Alembic in um, late November or mid November of 78. Okay. So that would have happened sometime after that. Got it. So got it. Um, what are some of the design concepts other than you mentioned about the nuts and uh, the action? Well, the the basic construction 
really followed the 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 then standard alembic way of building, which was the laminated a stiff laminated neck running all the way from tip of the peghead to the butt of the instrument. Okay. With uh, the body being made as two sandwiches with a, a center core of generally mahogany that would be bandsawed out so the instruments are chambered, if you will. They they um, the the bandsawed out section would be oh an inch an inch and a quarter wide more or less around the periphery of the instrument. Um, so the the typically the top and the back would be quarter inch and on these it would be bird's eye maple. Okay. And then the core would be an inch and a quarter thick and then band sawed out externally and internally and then finished off nicely on the outside, rounded over and, yes. and all yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and then the neck I don't remember whether I did five-piece laminated necks or seven-piece laminated necks on on those instruments. Um, five was normal. Seven was kind of an upgrade. Okay. Um, and with contrasting strips of, jeez, uh, and I I actually don't remember what I. I mean, the predominant wood was maple, and I don't remember whether I. Did the contrasting strips in uh, walnut or purple heart was fairly normal. Mm-hmm. Um, don't I don't remember on 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 those. Sure, it is a while ago. Yes, it's almost yeah. <laughs> almost forty years. Or yeah, yeah, or perhaps longer. Did he have other than the the buzzing across all frets requirement? Did he have any tone goals that he was going for? Well, he um you know, he really took to that first alembic that he got. And I can't say that the explorers sounded a whole lot different. <clears throat> you know, what really what we were going for was um pickups that had full uh audible frequency response so that you know, with a typical magnetic high impedance magnetic pickup, there's a there's a resonant peak well within the audible range, mm-hmm. and of course that is affected also by the uh, by the cable uh, and any particularly any capacitance loading in the instrument, also by the just by the loading of the pots in a in a passive instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a passive electric guitar or bass, it and its cable is just one massive uh, RCL uh, circuit. So any change you make <clears throat> changes that resonant point and <clears throat> and the subsequent roll off. So with the, with Alembic, what we try to do is wind the pickups for as much free gain as we could get and then get the resonant uh, point out past 20k okay and then the the alembic electronics that Ron Wickersham developed um, 
was a variable frequency uh, low pass filter with a three position Q switch. Oh, that's what that was. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so one position was just a flat roll off. Uh, one was a put in a little bump okay. at resonance, and one put in a, and that little bump would be typical of the bump that you'd find with a with a high impedance pickup. Okay. And then there was the big bump, where if you swept the frequency control, you got almost a wah-wah-like effect. Interesting. And you'd, you'd have a, <clears throat> a real significant peak. And various people used these electronics in different ways. Of course, that was about the time that um, Stanley Clark was also... Mm-hmm. getting really big into the alembic thing yes, yes. and um and he he would use quite a quite a peak and whistle was um i i found that john really liked the wide range of the pickups mm-hmm. and so he could he could work with that with his with his amp to, to really develop a a distinctive slot within the context of the band. Yeah. And um, get right in there and compete with Pete if he had to. Right. And then at the same time, he could drop back in and and really have that, that low end underneath. So Interesting. Yeah. And um, do you recall which albums or recordings these instruments were using? No, I really don't. Um I seem to recall seeing videos uh, in the face dances, It's Hard and Too Late the Hero era. Yeah, and I, I've sort of, I, I don't know, I'm more into looking at some of the live stuff yes. where he was using uh-huh. it, you uh-huh. know. Like Live Aid. That, yeah. That must yeah. have been a real thrill. Yeah, it's a real thrill. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, and I never went to any of the sessions. Um so uh, I don't I don't have that behind the scenes you know these strings that instrument this track sure, thing sure. you know um it's funny cuz it's also just after that time I'm trying to think I think seems to me that the that the ant whistle stuff was about 73 74 with with us because then it was a couple of years after that that I started developing the uh, the graphite uh, the carbon fiber necks mm-hmm. and then also developed a relationship with um, John McVie of Fleetwood Mac yes because uh-huh. um, then rumors was in 76. Recorded in '76, um, but and and with those guys, I did uh, spend a lot of time in the studio and really get to know the those kind of setups. They were recording in Sausalito. In Sausalito at the at the record plant. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really I really don't have a track by track. On, on John and, and his usage of, of which Alembic instrument. You know, the, 
somebody could do a uh, kind of like the Beatles gear book, <laughs> yes, yes, you know, or the the Grateful Dead gear book, yes, do yes. A, a Who gear book. It would be pretty extensive. Yeah, it would be pretty extensive. <laughs> That'd be a weighty tome. Yeah. Uh, all I know is when those instruments came along, there seemed to be a shift in his tone um, that I, I loved. It yeah. seemed to go to a lot more hi-fi, if you will. Yeah, and that's the whole point of the instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was that you could go really hi-fi, full range, or if you if you wanted to, you could roll back that low-pass filter and simulate the effect of old-style pickups. kind of thing. And of course, uh, you know, and a, a lot of my, my still my interest these days is to tease out the what is the sound of a pickup? What is what is it? Because it's not just the LCR mm -hmm. network. Um, it goes much deeper than than just the simple. Um, understanding of the resonant point and the roll-off and all that. Because mm -hmm. if that really were all there was to it, then the Alembic circuit should be able to superimpose a Gibson or Fender or any other Guild Starfire, any other frequency response on a full-range pickup and mm -hmm. get it. But mm -hmm. it doesn't. It gets you in the ballpark, right? But there is a there's a signature sound. Well, there are several signatures of magnetic pickups, and the LCR filter is just one of those aspects. Um, the other gets deeper into the very complex three-dimensional dynamic relationship between the string, the literal shape and strength of the magnetic field, and uh, and the coil. Mm -hmm. And and it's, you know, you get into things like the, the height of the coil is a real factor because magnetic phenomena drops off as the square of the distance. So the turns at the bottom of a coil are not doing as much work as the turns at the top. Right. And because the shape of the magnetic field is different there and the interaction between that field and the string is different, perhaps the tone is different there. And you get into some of these aspects of it. There's the... the the length of the string that the um, that the coil is sensing, right? Also, mm -hmm. and um, and so it's a th it it is literally a three dimensional dynamic relationship that is its own kind of tonal yeah. thing. And lately, well, not just lately, but for the last couple of decades, one of my deep interest has been in um, developing uh, 
piezo pickups yes. that have to be uh, interfaced correctly with the string. So there's the old real estate thing, location, location, location. <laughs> yes. And there is the geometry. Once again, there's the, the, the geometry of how the pickup interfaces with the different uh, string vibration vectors. And a string, so it, and that gets pretty complex pretty quickly too. So, in a way, I wish John were still around to try out my new piezos. He'd love them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, much wider frequency. Much wider, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's. Uh, I describe it as being whales to bats. Uh, you know. Uh, the pickups can get down practically to DC. Yeah. And then it's really just a matter of the the interface. Uh, I have had the opportunity to try them through um, DC coupled systems. And it's really astounding to move the string at, you know, two or three hertz and watch the speaker cone move <laughs> in and out at two or three hertz. Wow. It actually, it's, it's, in a way, they're too good at it. Because really, once you get below 30, it's, it's not necessarily useful information. And it gobbles up huge amounts of, of power from the amplifier. And then, of course, you start getting into the Doppler uh, distortion effects. And, you know, so... So I, I, ha I have, at times, put in little um, uh, low-frequency limiting switches, which is easy because all you have to do is throw the right resistors in there in parallel with the, with the, the piezo, and you, you roll off the low, the low end. But, um, <clears throat> but the, the interesting thing with the piezos is that most people think of piezos as being fingernails on the blackboard. And that's because they've rarely heard them interfaced correctly. You have to do a, a very high impedance buffer, yes. and then, then the piezo itself has to be located and interfaced correctly. And then you get really beautiful, um, very, very wide frequency response with also with really good phase response. And that's something that, um, that's another obsession of mine is, is group delay and phase response. And that's something that even in the high-end hi-fi world, there aren't that many people that understand how important that phase response stuff is. And um, uh, it's pretty amazing when you when you start getting it right. So, and uh, just to back up, uh, John's instruments didn't have any piezos at the time. They had no, been no. It's funny. I in about 1976, I think it was, maybe after I did John's basses. I designed a new bridge for Alembic that they're still using. Um, 
And one of the goals of the bridge was to make it possible to put piezos in. I never got around to developing the piezos for those bridges. Um, took me another, God, almost 20 years to really, wow, you know, get back into working on that kind of design stuff. Uh, was it that long? No, actually it was another, about another 14 or 15 years. Um, but the, you know, I don't even know if the folks at Alembic know that the bridge that they're using was originally designed to be able to ad be adapted to piezo pickup use. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, the eight-string bass, um, tell me about that one. That one seems to be the oddball. I haven't seen that one in many videos or live shots. No, I'm, well, you know, what, John had 80 or 90 bases when he died? <laughs> Something like that, you know. Um, I remember that video of him. Yeah, that classic video. Yeah, <laughs> of him blowing away gold records with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the eight-string bass thing is interesting. I love it. Um, I haven't made any in years, but I... I do make uh, the occasional baritone 12 string, mm. which is getting close. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost there. Um, and that octave thing is, is, is pretty wonderful. I do not understand how people can play those 12 string basses mm. like Tom Peterson. I, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's, I mean, I think it's cool, but I, uh, I haven't tried building one. But the A-string is really great. And for me, because I grew up listening to Lead Belly, yeah. and Lead Belly played basically a baritone 12-string. Hmm. So that octaves, octaves way down thing is, is a favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what John might have used that on. I don't think he used it live that I know of. But the only thing I can think of is on Too Late the Hero. I think there's one or two songs that it's mentioned in the credits and it kind of sounds like it might be. But yeah. I don't know for sure. I don't know. I don't know, but it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you recall, um, when John received the instruments, did he come to Olympic to pick John them up? John did come to the shop, but we, I'm pretty sure we just sent them to him. Mm -hmm. Um, he came out to the to the chicken ranch shop with uh, with Alan Rogan and took us out to a very nice Basque dinner that night and uh, <laughs> yeah um, you know absolutely charming chap as the Brits would say uh, and knew how to love knew how to live knew how to drink you know. <laughs> He had he had a a portable, you know. In those days, anvil cases were the thing for for road cases, and uh, and various of the rock stars were having custom anvil cases made. I know Elton John had one made for his bicycle, so he could take <laughs> it on the road, and there was one for his piano, 
and um, and John had an anvil case bar that that he would set up <laughs> in the hotel room. <laughs> so, you know, nice little cutouts for the glasses and the and the and the whiskey and gin bottles and all that stuff. So yeah, so. That's funny. I yeah. I recall a lot of the live shots with him using your Alembic instruments have these two water bottle looking things. And yeah. <laughs> I recall an interview where he said, oh, yeah, one's white wine, the other's red wine. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a character. Yeah, absolutely. Do you recall uh, his re- reaction to getting the instruments? I don't recall other than... He seemed to love them based on how much he used them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, for me, that's the the thanks I get is generally seeing the instruments being used. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, like with, with Lindsey Buckingham. I mean, of course he's thanked me. But the real thanks comes every time I see a photograph of him that I haven't seen before mm-hmm. of him using one of the instruments. So that's, uh, you know, I'm a tool maker. I'm trying to make tools for musicians to make it easier for them to make the music they want to make. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so my thanks comes when I get to, to see and hear that intent of the instrument being fulfilled, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, and it's it's fun to make pretty instruments. It's fun to make them look nice and use cool woods and cool finishes and inlays and all that. But fundamentally, um, they're tools, and so I, you know, so playability and sound are the two equally most important issues. Um, ergonomics is, is important. Uh, the instruments have to be reasonably comfortable. And that was one thing I learned about the Explorers. Is I'd, I hadn't quite gotten it about the Explorers until I built those, that they're actually remarkably comfortable instruments it's really weird because you can rest your Cause, yeah because you can rest your arm on them and they and it's um <clears throat> i don't think that the guys at gibson were thinking comfort when they designed it <laughs> who was it was was ted mccarty designed i don't know anyway but but the instruments are remarkably comfortable mm-hmm. so yeah pretty cool was it john's idea for the the alembic shape is that where it came from? For the explorer shape? I'm sorry. Yeah. John, yeah. He specifically wanted three Olympics in the explorer shape. Got yeah. It. Very, very specific about that. And I don't remember whether he sent me a tracing or I borrowed one from someone. And I, I don't remember exactly how I mm-hmm. drew it up. 
it, it seems to be an interesting alum, uh, explorer shape in that the access to the higher frets is really good. Yeah, yeah. Was that a request from him or just a design no. thing? No, <clears throat> no. I mean, basically, uh, you know, there really uh, there were not a lot of discussions about the design. It was, you know, alembic style neck on an explorer style body and he was familiar with the electronics because he'd used yeah because he already had the the uh a, a standard um what now is called i think a series i we weren't we weren't calling them series one and series two in those days okay and in subsequent years the uh, the styles have been sort of defined like that and I believe that John's first one was a was a series one, what now is called a series one, uh, five piece neck, um, three piece body halves. I don't remember where that first. It might have been zebra wood top and back. Um, I just know those were the most gorgeous instruments I'd ever seen. <laughs> when I saw yeah. that, I was like, "Whoa!" Now that's a custom instrument. <laughs> yeah, it's a custom <laughs> instrument. Yeah, yeah, but you know. We, in those days, we didn't really have much in the way of absolute standards in woods. I mean, the the necks were generally maple and purple heart because the woods work well together, they glue well together, um, they machine well together. It's a very distinctive look. Mm-hmm. Um the purple heart, if anything, is a little bit stiffer than maple. And so one of the interesting things about laminating a neck with different woods is that you're actually uh, spreading the resonant cue of the neck interesting. out a bit so that, uh, so that if you have a a neck resonance it will it will be damped down a little bit okay um so the dead spots may not yeah it it's fewer dead spots because of that because it you know the dead spot <clears throat> is an overactive resonance of the neck the neck is sucking the energy out of the string uh and and that's it's interesting because Engineers, to an engineer, resonance means one thing. To musicians, it's generally seen as a positive quality that you want. And in fact, it's sometimes a very negative quality that you don't want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you want. In an, in an instrument for it to be interesting, you want resonances, but you want them spread out and you don't want any of them to be too huge. Yeah. Um, as it is one of the interesting things about the, the carbon fiber necks is that maybe they don't have enough uh, interesting resonances. That seems to be the... Uh complaint i've heard from the, they sound cold cold yeah or basically they don't Boring. sound like wood yeah which, which yeah has a lot yeah. of dead spots 
Uh, although the the current generation, some of the current generation of carbon fiber guitars are quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very interesting. Yes. You know, um, and I I combine wood and carbon fiber quite a bit. Mm. Uh, in your current instruments? In in our current instruments. Yeah, all of our bases have carbon fiber in the necks. Um, for my acoustic guitar building, I've got fairly extensive use of combining carbon fiber with wood in, in mm-hmm. the bracing of the back and, and the body. Not so much in the top, um, but also in the neck. And even... Even in the ukuleles that uh, that we build, we throw in a bit of carbon fiber to support a cantilevered fingerboard extension. Oh, so this combination of of the materials is is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So back to the explorers um, regarding wood, the ebony fingerboard was that a request? Was no, it- it, you know, in those days, ebony is just what we used. Mm. Um, uh, we might have done a very few maple fingerboards might have done a very few rosewood also did a few um, stainless steel fretless fingerboards wow Uh, (laughs) John John McVie got uh, the first of the Alembic long scale um, bases with a fretless uh, stainless steel fingerboard um, and use that on um, on one of the cuts on rumors so hmm. yeah I'll have to go back and that, listen to yeah. that the outro to the chain I love that uh, yeah. where yeah right that that is Stainless steel fretless Alembic. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. That's one of the coolest bass lines. <laughs> yes, yeah, so simple. And that's the thing about McVie is that nothing flashy, and it's always exactly the right part. Yeah, great bass player. Yeah. Great bass player. Underrated like crazy. And, and he doesn't want um, publicity. Mm. I mean, I... I was approached to approach him um, by Bass Player Magazine. They wanted to do a cover article on him. And John said no. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He turns down the cover of of Bass Player, you know. So anyway. Great Bass Player and great tones, too. Yeah. Do you happen to know where the Explorer instruments are? I know one of them went at auction for something like $88,000. Yeah. And I don't know where the other ones are. Um, I seem to recall an interview where John and Twistle said something about the one that he played at Live Aid went to Hard Rock Cafe or something. That's entirely possible. possible. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's just from memory as a kid reading these magazines. Yeah. Well... Any other thoughts on on these instruments? Uh, it. How long they took to build? A, a few months. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you know, 
I mean, when when I was building them, and I mean, yes, it was a big deal, but at the same time, it was it was normal. Yeah. Because I mean, that was, I mean, you know, those were the days when, uh, you know, we were building instruments for Led uh, Zeppelin. Yeah, Led Zeppelin, The Who. The Dead, The Airplane, mm-hmm. Stanley Clark, uh, Lewis Johnson, uh, uh, Greg Lake. Um, I mean, it, you know, so it was just kind of building and deal, building instruments for and dealing with rock stars was normal. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, Fleetwood Mac. Um, so it it was just it's just what we did. So it was it was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal. But big deals were kind of normal. So <laughs> great times. Great yeah, times. it was a great time. Yeah. And what was really great was that <clears throat> these musicians, particularly in the earliest days of Olympic um Guys like David Crosby and and uh, and the guys in the Dead and the Airplane trusted us um, to, to. I mean, they basically funded the R and D, and um, hmm. I mean, we didn't have any other money, you know, other than what had come from Owsley, you know, and that was just the equipment, the 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 PA system in those days. Okay. And so, you know, Phil and Jack and David and, and I mean, these guys, they just, um, they basically trusted Ron and I to push the state of the art forward. And, um, and I have to say, we didn't, we didn't let them down. You know, we, uh, we kept we kept upping the ante on the technology of the instruments and really took it significantly farther than it had gone before while at the same time being able to apply a certain level of art and craftsmanship to it all mm-hmm. but but you know i mean i have to say that that um Ron Wickersham was as much of an artist in his understanding of what electronics would be useful yes as I might have been in designing pickups or the or the instruments or the metalwork you mm-hmm. know so it was um, it was a, a very good a good time for that kind of work to happen and then I was also fortunate in having a number of um, luthiers come through the shop who had a lot of talent um, and who were able to pretty quickly pick up on what my ideas were and and run with them in the in the shop so great and yeah i know the artists they must have really appreciated it because if simply looking at how many album covers used the instruments i mean yeah Stanley Clark, I know um, John and Twistle, The Too Late to Hero. Um, I think even uh, uh, 
Fleetwood Mac, there's an anthology that has the yeah. bass. Yeah. Not only are they beautiful instruments, but I'm sure the the artists just wanted to give back. Well, and and it's it's especially nice when when an, an instrument that I've designed becomes kind of the signature instrument for for a particular musician. Mm-hmm. And that has been particularly true for I would say Stanley Clark and Lindsey Buckingham, you yes, know, right. uh, where they've they've got, they you know, they they bonded with the instrument and have stuck with it for decades now. So yes. it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really Great. appreciate it. Great. Thank you for listening to this Sonic Nuance Electronics podcast. Please also see our blog at sonicnuance.com, which has more articles on performance, equipment, as well as interviews. Sonicnuance.com has handmade rugged direct boxes with phantom-powered chromatic tuners, as well as instrument and headphone extension cables. All products are designed, tested, and made in the USA for the ultimate in fidelity and durability. Sonic Nuance Electronics. Simply sound. <laughs>